Well, tonight we're continuing our study of the Lord's Prayer, and if you've been here for the past few weeks, you remember that it occurs twice in the New Testament. First, in Luke, or once in Luke, I should say, where Jesus tells his inquiring disciples, he just flat out says, say this when you pray. And then it occurs also once in Matthew, where we just read that in the scripture, where Jesus, who is in the middle of preaching uh, this, this powerful Sermon on the Mount, teaching his disciples and followers what life in the kingdom looks like, he says, pray like this. And so what we can really learn, I think, from these two passages is kind of a summary of the Christian life, really. We learn both what we ought to pray and we learn how we ought to live. And so let's recap what we've found so far in the Lord's Prayer and what we will find. So first, we start with an invocation, an invocation of a certain person, an invocation of God. But who is this God? Plenty of people in history have used the word God. It's a generic title. Who is the God that we believe in, though, as a church? Well, we believe first and foremost he is the Father of our Lord Jesus. So he is, because he is Father and, 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 and the Son is eternally his Son, they exist in a relationship together in the Spirit uh, between them. But in Christ, we also get to call this God Father. So although he is creator, he's the sovereign, he's the Lord Almighty, he's totally transcendent and above anything we know and can experience, we also get to call him Father because we have been placed in union with Jesus, who loves us and cares for us in our weakness, in our uh, sickness, and in our, even in our sin. So the one that we invoke is God, the Father of Jesus, now our Father too. And once we invoke the Father, then we are free to petition him. We get seven petitions over the course of this prayer. Three petitions to the Father and four petitions about the family. And as we close out this prayer, we end with a doxology. That is, we praise God for who he is and what he's done and will continue to do in our life as the church. So, this first petition that we've, that we've seen, this first petition about the Father, is that we ask that his name be hallowed. Now, what does that mean? It means that we ask that not that he would be changed, but that we would be changed by revering and hallowing and setting apart his name. In other words, we're not asking for God to change or anything different to happen to God, but for us to finally see who he is as the hallowed revered God that he is, that we experience him like that. And then secondly, we, in the second petition about the Father, we ask that his kingdom come. And what does that mean? Does that mean that a, a, a certain place uh, moves? I don't know if anybody's probably, I don't know, maybe Patrick, you might know this one, Gwen, I don't know. Howl's Moving Castle, have you ever heard of that movie, the famous Studio Ghibli movie? Is that ringing a bell? No. It's about it's, it's a it's a fairy tale about this castle that's on like big iron legs and wheels and it moves all over the country place. We're not asking for uh, a place to come to us, but we're asking instead um, that God's rule and reign, his divine activity would come and swallow up the world as it is. That his his rulership uh, would come and heal and bring forgiveness and resurrection to the way that the world should have been all along. So it's not about a place, but it's about uh, a, a way of being coming into this earth. So we've prayed that 
for essentially that God would be God to us, we'd experience him as God, and that we would be changed by his kingly rule. That's what we've prayed so far. And so this third and final petition about the Father tonight is from Matthew chapter 6, verse 10b. We read, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, as always, this study is our attempt to scratch the surface of what this means, None of what we've done so far is exhaustive, exhausting the full meaning of it, but hopefully we'll learn something for how this uh, shapes our daily Christian lives. So let's look at this one line, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, the tragic reality of the world in which we live today is that in the time that it would take us to recite the Lord's Prayer together as a church, Even in that brief time, statistically speaking, two children would have died of malaria, five would have died of starvation, and over a hundred would have been killed in the womb. And the time it would just take us to say that prayer together. Now the scale of, of human suffering and death in our world is quite literally beyond our ability to fathom it. We can't quite wrap our mind around what's going on in the world, and we never have been. And these facts are so beyond our rationality. Sometimes it seems that only when we engage our imagination can we really seem to start to feel the impact of them. Because when we just give the raw statistics and numbers, that, I don't know, it's so easy to detach from that. But sometimes something about Thinking about it imaginatively helps us. So, for instance, 20th century British novelist P.D. James, she wrote towards the end of her book, The Private Patient, she says, if the screams of all of Earth's living creatures were one scream of pain, surely it would shake the very stars. That's a powerful and haunting image, isn't it? West Hill calls this a terrible choir of pain, as God's ears are bombarded by the screams of agony of his creation. And and truth be told, this is one of the great challenges, I think, apologetically of the Christian faith, how to reckon the fact that the world is in such pain and is suffering so greatly with the reality that God is this great and perfect and powerful being. It's hard for us, I think, even as Christians who believe the gospel, to square that God exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, even now in perfect triune fellowship and bliss, while his creation, on the other hand, is writhing in pain, tormented by unconscionable horrors, both things that we've unleashed ourselves and things that have been unleashed on us. But yet it's this third petition that causes us to really confront the way the world is, to confront these stark realities of life. So when we pray, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, we are acknowledging that all is not as it should be in the here and the now, right? So when we pray that God's will be done, we're essentially acknowledging that in some way, God's will is not currently being done in this world. The will of God is not being followed by everyone here on earth. But then in turn, we're also asking God to overcome this contradiction, the contradiction between how God is and how the world 
should be. That the peace that God enjoys right now in his triune life as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, as in his heavenly life, we might say, might be shared by us creatures in joy here on earth, even now. So when we pray this way, what we're doing as Christians is we're showing that we are setting ourselves against the way the world currently works. So we are, in fact, a people that when we are one with Christ, we're a people that also are saying that we're in opposition to the reign of all the false kings of this world. We're in opposition to the reign of things like cancer and coronavirus. We're in opposition to human trafficking and hurricanes. We're in opposition to unfettered greed and the unending production of toxic waste and all the terrible things that happen on this planet. All the things that are just the way it is. The the things that we just have to learn to, to deal with, to cope with, to just live with it because that's just real life. This prayer dares us to imagine that although this is the way that it currently is, this is not the way that it should be. And in fact, this is not the way that it always will be. Under the reign of God Almighty, something different, a different kind of world can and will exist. So in fact, under the rule of Christ, these things that we just have to live with are, in the words of Wes Hill, profoundly abnormal profoundly unnatural. Life is what is supposed to be natural. It's what God created. Death is the unnatural invasion. That's what sin is, too. A lot of theologians talk about this. Sin itself is not a uh, metaphysical substance. Sin is a parody. It's a twisting of what God has made good already. When we think of sins, uh, the the intimacy that uh, a, a married couple shares and uh, their life together that brings life into this world, that is parodied by sin, it's twisted by sin, so it becomes uh, a matter for objectifying human beings or, or uh, people become trafficked and, and, and sold into, into slavery. What we have from God is the good thing, and what humans do with it is the evil thing. Even with food or, or drink, the things that God gives us to be blessings, to enrich our lives, to, for us to find nourishment and joy in. People can become addicted to these things and eat so much of one substance or drink so much of one substance that they become gluttonous or drunkards until it uh, corrodes their body away. The thing that's supposed to give them energy and life actually brings death instead. So the way that God sets the world up to be natural, to be normal, we find the way that sin interacts with it is to twist it, to bend it, to make it so it doesn't give life, but it gives death instead. So when we pray, thy will be done, what we're doing first and foremost is entering into an appropriate state of lament. You know, we've talked about this, especially when we were in the Psalms together, Psalms 1 through 40 on Wednesday night, how David has these great... um, Psalms of of sorrow, of lament, of crying out because the way that his world is, is not the way that he realizes it should be. It's a protest in the words of um, Todd Billings, the the reformed pastor. A lament is a protest against the sin of this world, 
rejecting that and looking towards God's kingdom instead. So when we pray, thy will be done, we're lamenting. We're entering a state of distress over the way the world is now because we are convinced as Christian people that God's will, even now, is to transform this world into something different, into something better. And maybe, to our surprise, what we learn from this prayer is that even through our prayer, God will accomplish this. Not that he has to, not that he's bound by our prayer, but he invites us to the opportunity to pray so that through our prayer, he'll use this as a vehicle for him to bless the world, to usher in the blessings of his kingdom. And so British evangelical theologian David Wells says this when it comes to the importance of our petitionary prayer, of us praying, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He says, petitionary prayer only flourishes where there is a twofold belief. So the first belief is that God's name is hallowed too irregularly, that his kingdom has come too little, and that his, his will is done too infrequently here on earth. So that's the first belief. And the second belief is that God himself can change this situation. Petitionary prayer, therefore, is the expression of the hope that life as we meet it, life as we know it, on the one hand, can be otherwise. And on the other hand, that it ought to be otherwise. To pray, then, declares that God and his world are at cross purposes. So when we pray on Wednesday nights for one another, when we get together in that Zoom meeting and we pray, we are praying for the people that have cancer, that have dementia, that are aging, that are jobless. We are praying that's the way the world is right now. We're praying that the world might be another way. Their life might be another way. That God would uh, pour out his blessing as it exists in his perfect heavenly state, so that the thing that is currently killing us might actually give us life. That's the importance of petitionary prayer, and specifically of this prayer, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So in other words, we pray because we are under full conviction that the coming of God's kingdom begins with Jesus flows out through his church and spills over into this world and becomes visible and tangible, not in the future, but even now. We ask that God's perfect state that he exists in, that heavenly state, would come and wash over the scars of this world. That the groaning of creation that we read about in Romans 8, that that groaning wouldn't be in vain. That there really truly would be a coming adoption of, of, of sons, that there would really be a coming redemption, even of the world. But that transformation doesn't just take place, we believe, in our lives, but we believe through the power of prayer, that transformation goes out through our personal lives, and God can bless it through families, through cities, whole societies. We can see what starts with just our prayer in our closet can become a blessing to the world all over. I'd go even so far as to say that what we are doing when we pray for this, when we pray this petition, that thy will be done, we are praying that the future, which is set and certain in the mind and the will of God, 
that that future would invade our present, that it wouldn't stay far off in the far distant, uh, uh, the land of tomorrow, but it would come to today. That we would pray for the inevitable would become the imminent, would be here in our lives. That we pray for the glorious would transform the ordinary right now even. And so when we hear the words of the psalmist, for instance, in Psalm 57, he says, God who is exalted above the heavens, he prays, let your glory now be over the whole earth. Although your glory is in heaven, beyond our realm, in the skies above, in the, in the places that we can't access by our human will and limitation, let that come to earth even now. Or I like also how Fanny Crosby says this. She calls this that we might experience a foretaste of glory divine. For what will be when heaven and earth one day are fully reunited, but for us to experience that in some way, even if it's only in a passing glance, even if it's only just a foretaste, even now. We believe that God can and does work through this prayer. But the, quick, the, the, the big question, I suppose, that we have to address now is that how exactly will this happen? How does God answer this prayer? Now, after all, Jesus tells us to, to pray boldly to the Father. Pray that even here, even now, that thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So how should we expect the the Father to answer? If Jesus tells us to pray this way, we should expect that the the Father will answer us. Now, how will he do that? As with all things, we look to the life of Jesus to gain some understanding about how this unfolds in our own Christian life. Now remember, on the eve of Jesus' crucifixion, he is in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he is praying to the Father, with some of the exact same words that he teaches his disciples to pray with. He says, my father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Talking about the coming um, uh, suffering and judgment that he'll stand in our place and experience. If it's possible, Lord, let this unimaginable thing pass from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. And he goes on to say, my father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. Scholars have noted there's an importance of exact words here. In other words, the wording is identical, both in what we just read in the garden and in the Lord's prayer. Your will be done. Exact same verbiage is used in both. That's not an accident, I don't think. So how does the father answer Jesus' prayer in this scenario. How is the Father's will done here on earth as it is in heaven? The shocking, the surprising answer for us is that Jesus is not rescued from his fate. How does the Father respond to Jesus' prayer? By allowing him to drink that cup to be arrested and tried, bound, scourged, and ultimately crucified. Now that, in our estimation, does not look like the peace of heaven coming to earth, does it? That is not what we would imagine when we ask, God, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That, doesn't, that would never be our wildest guess of how God would answer that question. 
In fact, it looks like life just as it's always been. That looks like the thing that we're trying to get away from. So what are we to make of this? Is God an absentee father? Is he, is he neglectful? Is he not listening? Is he not answering? Quite the contrary, as it turns out. More to the point, how do we understand Jesus' prayer in Gethsemane, which led him to Calvary? How do we understand that as God's will coming to earth? Well, in our world that's marked by the curse of sin and it's marred by the power of death, how does God's will in all its fullness, all of its life, all of its love, how does it actually take root here on earth? And we find the answer to that in the most surprising way. How does God bring his future into our now? To our surprise, it's by the crucifixion of his own son that the glory of heaven is unleashed on earth. That's where it begins. That's how it starts. See, every one of us can see God's heavenly will in all the obvious moments of life and health and beauty and success and joy and happiness. But the big question, the question we need answered in our world of suffering is, what is where is God's will for us in our suffering, in our darkness, in our torment, in our isolation? Where is God's will for us then? The triumph of God's love and the power of his will is made known to us precisely by his entering into the horror of our world as we've made it. Deliberately, willingly come to dwell with us in the, the earth that we have made for ourselves. Only when God's will moves Christ towards us into our sin and suffering, without him being stained by our sinfulness, when only when we see him come in that way can we be assured that God's heavenly will can actually overcome earth as it is now. Just as it's always been, in other words. As Wes Hill points out, anything short of the cross of Jesus Christ, an answer to our suffering here on earth, anything short of that is just a band-aid. When what we really need is a, is a full-blown, back-from-the-dead, electric paddle resuscitation. Our heart is stopped. We are dead in our sins. We don't need just a little... Uh, uh, you know, a little motivational speech. We don't need just a little pep talk. We need God to come in and do something drastic in our world. If the heavenly will of God is to be enacted in this sin-scorched earth, with it ruined by death and decay as it is, it must also be the will of God for Jesus to enter fully into our pain and deal with it himself. Contrary to what all human wisdom and philosophy and religion would tell us, the way to God's perfect will is through the suffering of Jesus, not by avoiding it. Every way that you look at at, at wisdom for life, any self-help book, any sort of ancient philosophical or wisdom tradition would have you think that the way out of the mess that we're in is to ascend up to God, to build yourself up, to make yourself a better person. But all that ever results in is us building little towers of Babel that come crumbling down eventually. 
the answer to all of our problem, the answer to heaven coming to earth is by Christ coming to earth, being conquered on the cross, and in reality conquering the sin and death that conquer us. That is how God brings heaven to earth. And because of Christ's great unfathomable love for us, he bore all of our shame, all of our sin he carried on his shoulders on the cross, and he died in utter agony so that by his life and death and eventual resurrection, we might see God's will in heaven come down to earth even in our lives today. I mentioned at the beginning a a quote from the English writer P.D. James. More recently, I'm reminded, this was so shocking to me to read it in a graphic novel of all places, not traditionally, which is just a fancy word of saying a comic book, uh, which is not typically a place where you find any theological wisdom. I was reading a book by a a guy named Tom King, and one of his characters that's just a pulp-era action hero named the Spectre from the, the good old days of the goofy DC comics back in the 50s. This character, the specter says, I asked the Lord our God why we suffer. He didn't answer. He couldn't speak through the tears. I found that to be such a profound statement because it reminded me that Jesus of Nazareth, who always was, is, and shall be the Son of God, came into the world just as it is. Just as we've learned to cope with it, just as we've learned to deal with it, overrun with warfare and poverty, starvation, disease, addiction, abuse, all of it, so that he might bring the glory of heaven down to overwrite the tragedy of earth. And he does that by going to a cross to secure heaven's glory for earth's tragedy. He entered into our sorrow. He wept with us. He held us close. He fed us. He healed us. He cast out our demons and he raised us from the dead and was lifted up on a cross on our behalf. See, until we are changed by an encounter with that Jesus, until we come to that gospel understanding of heaven on earth, all our daydreaming about I'll fly away, oh glory, And all of our fantasies about building that mansion in the sky will be all for naught. Because God's heavenly will is not this primrose path to glory where nothing ever goes wrong. Instead, God's heavenly will is the shameful, scandalous, sacrificial way of the cross. We have no problem accepting that God's heavenly will is the perfect eternal love of Father, Son, and Spirit on full and glorious display unhindered by anything. That's so easy for us to imagine. Everything as it should be. God in all of his glory with with no mitigating factors like sin and sorrow and all that stuff. God's space as it should be. We have no problem understanding that. But what's less intuitive for us, however, is that God's heavenly will is actually already been put on full display in the loneliness of Gethsemane and in the agony of Golgotha. This is where our Lord, who is eternally God, yet became fully incarnate, came willingly. 
into what the scriptures call our far-off country. He came into our far-off country of the moral mess. He came into our wasteland of death. And it's here where we, as his creatures, mock him, spit on him, string him up, and leave him to choke to death on a cross. This, brothers and sisters, is what God's perfect and heavenly will looks like. That is to say, this is what it looks like when heaven comes down to earth to save us. So, as Christians, when we pray, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, indeed, what are we praying? Let's get back and and answer that question in brief. Well, Martin Luther answered it this way. When we petition God in prayer, we are not trying to convince him to do something he would not otherwise do. We don't get into an arm wrestling contest with God. We don't get into a pity party with God. We aren't changing God, who is unchangeable. We're not changing his mind. Instead, what we're actually asking for, regardless of our past failures or our current predicaments, we're asking that our hearts would be brought up into heaven, even now, so that we may learn and understand God's truer and greater realities for this earth. And in knowing that, live according to that. The way of the cross, which seems like foolishness to the world, is actually the pathway for God's coming kingdom. So what does heaven on earth look like? Jesus actually tells us what it will look like. He gives it to us all the way back in Matthew's gospel. In the Sermon on the Mount. You want to know what heaven's going to look like? You want to know what heaven on earth looks like? It looks like those who are poor in spirit receiving the kingdom of God. It looks like those who mourn being comforted. It looks like those who are meek inheriting the earth. Those who hunger and thirst for justice and righteousness being filled. It looks like those who are merciful being shown mercy. Those who are impure in heart seeing God. Like those who are peacemakers being called sons and daughters of God. It looks like those who are persecuted and reviled and spoken all manner of evils against for Jesus' sake, being able to rejoice because even in that, they can see, we can see that God's will, his heavenly will, has come down to earth in Jesus, his way of life and his life through his church. That's what it looks like when heaven begins to come down to earth. Now, one day, heaven will fully come down to earth. Uh, the Bible Project is so great about this. They have a great video about this, what, how heaven and earth. It's, it, we often think of uh, earth is here, we're on the ground, and heaven's up here in the sky, and we die, and we, like a, you know, a rocket on the 4th of July, shoot up into the sky, and that's where we are. The reality, though, is that when God creates the world, He comes and dwells with it in paradise. Heaven and earth overlap. They're one reality. These two uh, circles on the Venn diagram have become one. But because of sin, that, that reality is ruptured. They are split apart. But when Jesus comes back, by the way of his cross, by the power of his 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 love and forgiveness and his gospel, he takes the disparate world of earth with all its sin and death and everything and the glory of heaven and he brings them together by his cross and everywhere the church exists is a foretaste of what heaven's going to be like well it's a it's a foretaste of glory divine and one day christ will again 
fuse those realities together till there's no difference between heaven and earth because God will come to live with humanity and humanity will live with God forever. That's what it'll look like in full. But what we're praying for is that it might start to look that way now. So why pray for his will to be done here on earth now as it already is in heaven? Well, I'll let Sir Anthony Hopkins answer that for us. Or not really Sir Anthony Hopkins. It's his playing C.S. Lewis in that movie, The Shadowlands. Has, has anybody seen that? That's a good little movie from several years ago. But this is why Anthony Hopkins, or rather C.S. Lewis says he must pray. He says, I pray because I can't help myself. I pray because I'm helpless. I pray because the need flows out of me all the time, waking or sleeping. It doesn't change God. It changes me. That's why we pray. And so I want to conclude with what Pastor Malcolm Geit uses or gives us as a sonnet on this very thing. What does the kingdom come on earth look like? What is thy will done on earth as it is in heaven look like? He says this, the kingdom come, thy will be done on earth. Can we imagine what we're asking for? When all we know and all we think we're worth is vanity might vanish, disappear, Fading before the splendors, you reveal the beggars crowned with glory. All the meek exalted, even as the mighty fall, and everywhere the triumph of the weak. And we who have been first will be last, and cue for mercy like the refugees whom only moments earlier we passed. By on the other side, for now the seas that separated us are no more. The sun is risen like justice, and his will is done. And so, as our Lord Jesus taught us to pray, we pray together as a church. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.